He is sort of seeking to help them understand that if we are a self-sustaining company, then we can be more ambitious and aggressive about expanding the paper, growing the paper, and to use the term that he used, which is a term that Bezos uses a lot, to sort of get the swagger back, the swagger. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, November 9th. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers with a look at the new CEO of The Washington Post, Will Lewis, who introduced himself to Post staffers this week as the company looks to resuscitate a business that boomed during the Trump years, but has struggled ever since. And later, Eric Gardner joins Ben to discuss the most surprising legal news of the week. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers to talk about a story he's been ahead of for weeks now, which is the newly appointed publisher and CEO of The Washington Post. The name is finally known to all of us, Will Lewis, formerly of Dow Jones and The Wall Street Journal. Dylan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's so good to be back. So (laughs) this Brit... Sir Will Lewis. <laughs> this Brit. This Brit. This fucking Brit. There's so many Brits. <laughs> Sarah Fisher, I think, wrote something about that. There's so many Brits now running U.S. newsrooms. By the way, I welcome it. I welcome Three's it. Three's a trend. Three's a trend. <laughs> Three is a trend. And a trend makes a link. That's for sure. Will Lewis, obviously, the job was just announced. He's stepping in. What was his first order of business, Dylan? What is? What did he? Did he? He sent a note to the staff, didn't he? He did. And he met with the staff and he gave an interview to the Post, which seemed like the right thing to do. What's sort of very easy about understanding all of this is that the person who has been most clear about what Will Lewis's mandate is, is is Jeff Bezos himself, who sent his own note to staff saying that he was confident that they could return to profitability, which is not the most sort of rousing locker room speech that you want to hear as a journalist. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it is like at a for-profit company that is sort of the goal, especially when you're losing $100 million a year. And so the mandate, which I think Will has been pretty clear about, is like we need to be a self-sustaining company and as much as post rank and file might not sort of be terribly preoccupied with the PNL he is he is sort of seeking to help them understand that if we are a self-sustaining company then we can be more ambitious and aggressive about expanding the paper growing the paper and uh, to use the term that he used which is a term that Bezos uses a lot to sort of get the swagger back the swagger that mm. the post had in the Marty Baron Donald Trump 
era when for a time it seemed like the post was truly competitive with the New York Times. So Dylan, you you write that he was, you know, he had his inaugural meeting with staffers on Monday. And one employee asked if he could reverse the company's recent decision to cut 240 jobs, 10% of the workforce. I mean, that's not the point. <laughs> one employee. I, I mean, I think that's uh, you know that's some wishful thinking. Um, that's not why he's coming here. Uh, and that's also not how businesses work. But Dylan, no. what was his response? <laughs> Yeah, well, so so he's sort of had some admirable candor here, which is like one, no, I can't do that. I, th- I think you know, probably under his breath, he was like, "You idiot." Um, and uh, secondly, that he fully and in- though the decision was not his to make, that it was a decision he fully endorsed. And of course, in terms of sort of managing a business through a moment like this, this is what you do: you get rid of the CEO who mismanaged the company, that would be Fred Ryan, mm-hmm. you you put in a interim chief who is either well-liked or not well-liked, in, in Patty Stonecipher's case, very well-liked, uh, but who isn't going to be there forever. You have her implement the cuts or the buyouts, and then you bring in the new guy as sort of like the dawn of a new era. But again, befitting his sort of you know candor in this regard, he said that this was the right course of action for the paper and it was necessary to do and that now we can sort of achieve what we want to achieve through not through cutting but through growing i think for me when i've been talking to sources at the paper this week including sources who are sort of familiar with jeff bezos's thinking familiar with patty stonecipher's thinking and 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 will lewis's thinking is no matter what you do, no matter where you make the right or wrong investments in the user experience, in the marketing, in in the diversification of, of what you have on offer, say the way the New York Times did, mm-hmm. the thing that will make or break the success of the Washington Post is the editorial product itself. Mm-hmm. And so the big question now that we've gone through this months-long process of finding a new CEO is, will this new CEO, Will Lewis now go through the process of finding a new executive editor. And so the new question now is, now that we're done with this long CEO search that that I've devoted quite a bit of ink to, is are we about to go through the same process in terms of finding someone to replace Sally Busby, who never really matched her predecessor, Marty Baron, in terms of being a sort of generational visionary leader? And my instinct, and certainly based off of the reporting I've done, is that both Jeff Bezos and Patty Stonecipher and Will Lewis, although he doesn't say as much, sort of understand that Sally Busby is not going to be that transformational executive editor. And unless she can somehow prove herself to be a different kind of leader now that Will Lewis is in place over the course of the 2024 election that I, I think her future at the paper is very much an open question. Yeah, we also, I mean, you mentioned in your piece, it seems unlikely that she would be replaced before the 2024 election. We, you know, both of us sort of thought the same thing when Chris Licht was ushered out of CNN and they appointed the interim troika of leadership at CNN. And they were like, okay, well, let's calm the waters. And you and I thought, you know, maybe they'll just leave these three in place until after 2024, not rock the boat. Oops, that didn't happen. They brought in Mark Thompson. So it's not implausible that 
they could bring in someone before 2024. I mean, that is a year away. No. I mean, like, that's not... I mean, and like, look, the reporters themselves know how to do the work, <laughs> you know, if you're covering the campaign. Right. Regardless of who the editor is, you know, I, and I say that as a way of bestowing great respect upon the Washington Post's political reporters and campaign reporters. I mean, they get it. <laughs> right. One, I mean, I think one difference here, and, and obviously there's some distinctions in terms of, you know, Chris Lick being a CEO and, and Sally Busby being an executive editor, but Chris Licht was really disastrous for the organization. And he was disastrous, not just in terms of his own sort of ineptitude when it came to the, the business requirements of the job, but he was detrimental to the the morale of the newsroom itself. Sally Busby is a far more sort of innocuous leader. I think that she's people really, you know, she's very nice and she's easy to get along with and she's smart and and she's got a, a great deal of experience from both the Associated Press and and now at the Post. It's just so so she can sort of continue to do the job as Will Lewis sort of figures out, okay, what does this company really look like? What are the strengths and weaknesses? What do we need? Uh, who might that person be? And get them through the 2024 election in a way that I don't think Chris Licht could have gotten. I, I truly think that if Chris Licht, if, if they'd kept Chris Licht in place at CNN for another year, the damage to the brand could have potentially been irreversible. And I think in Sally Busby's case, I think it's just a question of, look, what are what are the long-term ambitions of this paper? Are we content to sort of like muddle through and make up our losses by cutting five to 10% of our staff every year? Or do we want to recapture some of that ambition that we had not so many years ago? And if we're going to do that, let us find a way perhaps to gently transition from from Sally Busby to somebody mm. else. So just to back up to Sir William John Lewis, I just looked up yes. his, full, his full name. What a, what a sturdy <laughs> British name, William John Lewis. I would not, by the way, can I just say, and other people have pointed this out, we should not underestimate just how much his British accent and Queen's English has sort of immediately allowed him to ingratiate himself with post staff because <laughs> as you and I both know, Americans are just so incredibly impressed with British accents and seem to somehow find them to be um, sort of smart and authoritative. And so I think whatever runway he has afforded by by dint of being new, he has afforded even f greater runway by dint of being British. My former boss at, at Snap, uh, Nick Bell, very capable, but like his very charming British accent definitely got some doors open, I think, when he was <laughs> helping build Discover for Snapchat. It was it was a sight to see. It was, it was quite horrible. Yes. And also, I remember he, I think he introduced me to Jerry Baker, uh, who was at, um, he was a former editor of the Wall Street Journal, but rich British accent. And I was like, ooh, this person is both charming <laughs> and intimidating. Um, it always, you know, we Americans are suckers for that. So Sir William John Lewis, just yes. to circle back, what, you know, just to punctuate this conversation, like, what are his big ambitions, big ideas. I mean, this this news of his first meeting at the Post came the same week that the New York Times, their rival, <laughs> perhaps uncatchable rival, announced that they have 10 million subscribers. What are his goals? Do you have a sense of that? I don't. And I don't know that he necessarily has a plan. And in fact, in his, his early, his first meeting, he effectively said, you know, don't, I, I need to get in. This is what everyone smart 
incoming CEO says, but I need to get in there and sort of see, you know, get comfortable with the furniture and and find my way to the bathroom and um, see how this place is working. And he said some very smart things. You know, he's a journalist by trade. He was a, he was a reporter before he became a media executive. And he said, you know, I, got, I love journalism. I wish I was still oh. a journalist. He also spoke to the importance. He said, you know, I believe that I don't believe in hierarchy. I believe great ideas can come from anywhere in this organization. So he's sort of saying all of the right things and buying himself the right amount of time. And I don't think he necessarily needs to have that vision yet. I think, you know, Mark Thompson, who executed the vision at the New York Times, um, is still figuring out exactly what his vision is for CNN. I think one thing that Will Lewis definitely understands, and he understood this at the Journal, and um, it's the same thing that Mark Thompson understands, is that the Post needs to get much more aggressive in terms of its sort of digital game. And mm-hmm. if you just, I mean, just the experience of, you know, going to the Post website or opening up the Post app versus the, doing the same for the New York Times um, makes you sort of immediately wa- aware of the delta that needs to be crossed here. Again, all of this is good and well, and, and I think his intentions are in the right place. But I do think the most important decision is going to be the the editorial one, because in order to have a package to sell to subscribers you do have to have a core editorial product that feels like a must read for people. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know this. We have friends at The Post. The Post does great journalism in that narrow area of politics and policy um, and investigations. Mm -hmm. But those are highly competitive. There are a lot of people in Washington covering that same game, and they're being threatened on all sides, whether it's from the Hill by Punchbowl or from Axios or Politico or even the New York Times, which is, you know, its political report is phenomenal. So they've got that competition. And the question is, OK, how are we going to stay competitive in that regard or even do better? And then also, w- what is the plan for diversifying the editorial product to find sort of more ways to bring in more people and keep people engaged uh, for for a greater amount of time? And and. I think so. I, I guess that's a long-winded way, Peter, of saying I don't think he has a plan necessarily, but I think he understands the challenges certainly better than perhaps his predecessor did. Will Lewis, Sir Will, if you're listening, I already told John Kelly this: the solution to all of your problems is to bring back Date Lab. Uh, just ask anybody at the Post <laughs> about Date Lab; they will explain it to you. I guarantee you, clicks galore. That's the silver bullet. Everyone, man, everyone just wants more Date Lab. Uh, Dylan, thanks so much, buddy. All right, Peter. Thank you. When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about the law and SBF. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner, our resident legal reporter and insider. How's it going, Eric? I'm doing well. Eric, I thought we'd mix it up today and do a sort of legal lightning round covering a bunch of wild stories that that you and I have been talking about before the session. Are you ready to get into it? Yep, I got my Jeopardy buzzer ready. (laughs) Great. Let's start with the fallout from the Sam Bankman-Fried trial. Uh, First of all, obviously, Sam is facing up to 110 years in prison after being convicted last week. How is the sentencing actually going to work in this case? Like, how long will it be before he actually finds out how long he's going to be spending in jail? Well, I believe the the judge has uh, scheduled sentencing way far in advance. So it's in, in March or April after the possible second trial is to come. So we won't know for, for months. But despite that, there's still a lot of work to be done. Both sides are going to be laying forth their a memorandum. There will be a parole officer who meets with, with Sam Bankman-Fried and the, the government will make its recommendations. And I'm sure Sam Bankman-Fried will try to round up people to talk on his behalf in a, an effort to convince the judge to go light. Uh, so that will be on the docket in the next few months. And then eventually there'll be a, a hearing and the judge will make the call. We'll find out what prison he actually goes to as well, right? I mean, there's like a wide variety in the types of prisons. Uh, I assume this is like a minimum security prison or or, do you, or is it necessarily a more intense prison just because of the number of decades he might be facing? Yeah, the length of time might play a certain factor to it, but obviously he will be considered less of a, a risk than many criminal defendants. So that's still to be ter- determined as well. And that may be uh, a source of fighting over the next few months as well. Well, SBF is not the only former crypto guy who's being or or been hunted by the government. There are, in fact, a bunch of crypto founders who are in custody or on the run or sort of holed up in various places around the world without extradition. One of which is Chenpeng Zhao. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. He goes by CZ. He's the founder of Binance, which was the, uh, the rival company to FTX, which sort of set in motion its downfall. CZ is apparently also on the government's wish list in terms of people they might want to talk to. Uh, what's the latest you're hearing about Binance and some of the, uh, the legal proceedings facing him? Yeah, I mean, I this is the guy who Sam Bankman-Fried considered shady, and <laughs> right. you, we might we, we might call Binance a rival, but that's actually doing a lot of credit to FTX because Binance is much much bigger, and so this guy is a bigger fish for the government, believe it or not, and they would love to probably prosecute him. The biggest problem, of course, is that he's overseas. I'm not sure exactly where. The last I heard, he was residing in Dubai, which doesn't have an extradition agreement. But getting past that, the SEC has charged Binance and Zhao with with, uh, securities fraud, and that's being fought over. I believe the SEC is about to put forth its motion, you know, on why this case should go forward. That's due imminently. This is a civil case, right? Not a, not yeah, a criminal this is a, case? 
this is a civil case on securities fraud. But when you read the, the thing, um, you see enough allegations there that you can say that this could form the basis of a criminal uh, indictment if, if prosecutors so wished. You know, they're probably looking into that sort of thing. They have uh, a long wish list of people who they want to depose. And, you know, it'd be interesting if they could get Zhao into the States to to testify whether he would, you know, evoke his Fifth Amendment rights or, or anything like that. So it's a, it's a very fascinating saga to watch in and of itself, besides what's going on with the SBF. You also reported there was there was like a former Binance executive who, who turned up like in the footnotes of this case, right, that they, they want to talk to her. Do you have some suspicion that like maybe she has flipped or, or is sort of willing to, to talk about her former boss? Yeah, Jasmine Lee, she was the uh, the CFO of Binance. Uh, she was brought over to the company in 2022, uh, ex-PayPal executive. She was brought over basically to engineer an IPO for the, for the company. And uh, she was let go a few months ago, apparently. Uh, this all came out in, in testimony from, from another witness in the case who said, oh yeah, this, this person has, has you know just been ousted from, from the company. Uh, which is interesting because the SEC has has been pushing to depose uh, Jasmine Lee herself. And, you know, who knows? I mean, has she flipped or not? I I can't say. Um, But uh, it it is interesting timing. And I'm very sure that the government wants to get their hands on as many uh, executives as they possibly can, as we saw how important that was in the Sam Beckman-Fried case. Yeah, never good when you have maybe potentially done some crimes and uh, you've got a bunch of former employees who, who are maybe pissed off at you, too. Eric, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Hulu, which Disney said, yes, officially, obviously, they're committed to buying this last remaining one third stake that they don't already own, which is being held by Comcast. And now Disney and Comcast just have to go through this process of dealing with some banks to figure out how much is Hulu actually worth. And there might be some variability in terms of uh, how people want to value this thing. But Eric, you've been chasing some leads that could complicate how this evaluation process unfolds. Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, first, let me back up for a second, because a lot of people might not realize this, but Comcast has played very little role in the affairs of of Hulu over the years. And that stems from the fact that Comcast bought NBC Universal uh, about, you know, 15 years ago. And as part of a, a deal with regulators to get this through, Comcast agreed that they would basically stay out of influencing Hulu's direction. So for all this time, all the studios that co-owned Hulu have, you know, had a vote on this sort of thing, except for Comcast. Comcast has had an equity stake, but no more. So all the other companies like Warner Brothers and CBS, they sold their st- their stakes. And now it's down to Disney and Hulu and Disney is executing its right to buy the remaining stake uh, for, for the company. And the question is how much that's worth. Now, you know, one thing that I had heard was that Comcast was a little upset about the uh, content that was appearing on Hulu. Obviously, Disney has a rival streaming service called Disney Plus, and there is always a question within 
Disney about you know whether or not to take content to Hulu, whether to take content to Disney Plus, and especially during the Bob Chapek regime, uh, they've opted in most instances to take stuff to Disney Plus. This has come up in lots of different con- contexts. The uh, infamous uh, Scarlett Johansson case for a few uh, a few years ago, for instance, where uh, she was upset that you know they had released Black Widow day and date on Disney Plus as well as in theaters and thus denying her a big box office bonus. Right now, there's also a case where the financer of, of Avatar 2 uh, is complaining that, that you know, they kind of canceled a licensing deal with, with, H- with HBO and they put that movie on, on Disney Plus as well. So th- this would be kind of in the same lineage of, of claims where Comcast says, look, you know, you devalued Hulu by basically taking content off of Hulu by, you know, keeping it and reserving it for Disney Plus and, and, and you know, we should be credited for, for that value. Now, I, I don't see any evidence that this is an ongoing claim in, in arbitration. However, as uh, the process unfolds to value Hulu, for what Disney has to pay Comcast for for its stake, this could be a, an issue. It, you know, it, it, it's a complication about how to value the company because you're looking at all these different worlds in which basically Disney treats Hulu as its favorite child rather than how it's currently doing it, where it's basically the second uh, child in, uh, in favor of uh, Disney Plus. Right. So, like, regardless of whether there was ever some conversation at Disney about deliberately cannibalizing certain content from Hulu, devaluing that asset to make it easier to buy the rest of it later. At the very least, it provides Comcast potentially with some leverage in this in this legal and financial process as, as it unfolds to say, hey, you know, maybe we'd like to look at the communications between your executives and how you made these decisions about what you were going to pull off of Hulu or which platform you were going to put a particular show on, because it does have pretty big potential implications for how much Hulu is actually worth, whether the value is really just in the platform and the technology, which is pretty impressive, or whether it's about the content on that platform, which Disney has actually had a lot of control over for the past couple of years. Yeah, and as as the process is right now, I mean, Disney and Comcast are hiring their own investment bankers to value Hulu. And if there's a difference of more than 10% between the two valuations, then it goes to a third investment bank. So if you start doing a calculation of what Hulu is worth with potentially The Mandalorian or with, with any of the uh, Marvel originals, that you know certainly might shift the valuation greater than 10% and, and reach that threshold. So it's certainly a, an issue that I'm paying attention to right now. All right, last one, and this is this is just for fun. Um, you've had some amusing reporting on a week of good news and also very bad news for the company behind Bored Apes Yacht Club, which is the uh, members-only crypto NFT community that I feel like we were all talking about so much a year or two ago and now has um, basically disappeared from the headlines until right now. So, Eric, what, what is going on with the Bored Apes? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Yuga Labs, uh, you know, back in the day, they were very, very hot. This was the, you know, the NFT that everyone wanted and celebrities even bought into it. And they were pitching these, you know, apes or things. And uh, Yuga Labs got into this fight with this conceptual artist named Ryder Rips, who basically came out with a copycat version of, of these apes. 
and uh, you know basically said that uh, he was trying to comment on the ape's racist origins and that defense didn't work uh, it went to trial and everything like that and basically Hugo uh, won on its intellectual property claims and uh, this past couple of weeks the judge you know ordered Ryder Rips to pay a couple million dollars uh, in damages that being said uh, Yuga has not had the the greatest of times other than that of late uh, they are you know one of the companies being hounded by the SEC uh, for alleged securities fraud and you know now you know apparently they had some sort of party for for their devotees uh, yesterday in Hong Kong and and uh, they had this laser light show and a lot of the attendees woke up reporting that they had eye problems and uh it's it's hysterical it's sad uh you know i don't know what to make of it but uh you know the the legal situation certainly is going to unfold in wild ways yeah the the event in hong kong sounds like a total nightmare you and i were just um talking about this before we got on the into the session here Yuga Labs put out some kind of statement where, where they just sort of, they acknowledge that, that people are experiencing difficulties. They're looking into it. You know, they're, they're not sure what happened. Certainly it couldn't be their fault. But, you know, if you're having difficulties, consult a doctor. It totally sounds like it's their fault. So I, I have to imagine there are going to be real legal problems down the line here. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I've never heard of a situation quite like this. But you can imagine when you're doing this sort of laser show that you should take a little bit of care and and all that. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, they're, they're in a bit of trouble, I'm sure, for the few people who have considered these apes to still be a very valuable property. And the NFT market has just absolutely crashed. But there are a few devotees still in, in it, and they still love their apes. And they went so far as to go to this uh, trade convention in Hong Kong. And for their, you know, <laughs> what happened was was they were basically blinded. So I, uh, I, I really feel for, for, for them. Yeah, shout out to and, and, and apologies to uh, any of our ApeFest attendee listeners here on the podcast. I don't know if there's any of you out there, but um, salt in the wound for someone who paid a million dollars for an ape JPEG who now has uh, photokeratitis. I was just looking this up, aka welder's eye, a condition caused by unprotected exposure to ultraviolet radiation. Also, uh, for anyone listening, don't look directly into the sun. Not great for you either. But uh, Eric, thanks very much for coming by. Uh, this was fun. Always fun. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.